Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're coming to you from the Uinta Basin. We're in Vernal, and uh, we are in the uh, Bingham Center, the Bingham Entrepreneurship and Energy Research Center uh, from uh, Utah State University, and uh, happy to be uh, with you today from Vernal. We're going to be talking about air quality and climate change. First, uh, some unfinished business from yesterday. You may recall that I talked with Dr. Lauren Abramson, founder and executive director of Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore. She has adapted Maori methods. Uh, in Maori history, a crime put the community out of balance. Traditional Maori justice seeks to restore that balance, focuses more on rehabilitation than punishment. And uh, Dr. Lauren Abramson, in the second most violent city in America, Baltimore, is uh, trying to use some of these principles of restorative justice. And so uh, Steve McIntyre writes in on our Facebook page. He says, I'm uh, sorry that I missed Access Utah today. He's talking about yesterday's program. Rushed home to catch it, but it was too late. And uh, as one whose knowledge about Maori uh, culture uh, comes entirely from the film Once Were Warriors, uh, highly recommended, he says, by the way. I was eager to uh, hear the interview and uh, learn from Dr. Abramson, uh, conflict resolution and her uh, knowledge of Maori culture. So thanks for that to comment, uh, Steve. And you can indeed hear that program on our website. We get those up uh, later the same day. Uh, so Utah, uh, upr.org, upr.org is the way to go. You can comment, by the way. We hope that you will throughout this program by email upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And we have a comment already. We'll get to that just a little bit later. Eastern Utah's Uinta Basin, where we are, has seen a sharp increase in economic development in recent years, with oil and gas extraction leading the way. Uinta County has grown by 29% in the last decade. And Vernal is the fifth fastest growing micropolitan area, according to the Census Bureau, in the country. With this growth has come an increasing air quality problem, mostly ozone in the case of Uinta Basin. A coalition of public health and conservation groups last year sued the EPA, saying the agency is failing to protect the Uinta Basin from high levels of air pollution. Our questions to you, can industry and cars coexist with good air? Do we face a choice between jobs and a healthy environment? And we'll be talking about climate change. Is this oil and gas extraction it's good for the economy in eastern Utah contributing to climate change? What can and should be done? And so I'm talking with Seth Lyman, who's an air quality expert, participating in some of the studies out here in the Uinta Basin, and is regional director for USU's Office of Commercialization and Regional Development. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to be with us. And uh, state climatologist Robert Gillis is uh, with us. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Tom. And uh, he'll give a talk this evening, 6 o'clock. This is a sold-out event. Uh, so if you uh, haven't made reservations, you can join us next time. But he'll be give a talk called Utah's Climate Symphony, How is Utah Wetter and Drier at the Same Time? We'll ask you that question as we, uh, as we go along. We'll be talking about China as we go along as well. Uh, Dr. Gillis directed my attention to an article, a very interesting article in the latest edition of The Economist, talking about the uh, perils and opportunities of explosive growth, which China is experiencing, and, of course, the air quality effects. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can start there, Dr. Gillis. You were telling me before we went on the air, and, of course, our Cache Valley listeners will uh, remember uh, shows ad nauseum through the winter. About every week we were talking about air quality. That's because it was just so bad. You, you could practically eat the air as, as, as you went out. You're telling me in Beijing this, this past uh, winter it, it was a lot, lot worse. Yes, Tom. I mean, in Cache Valley, I think it was up about over 100 micrograms per cubic meter, whereas in Beijing, it was 900 micrograms per cubic meter. And that is 40 times the WHO's, what they call the safe value. Mm. And literally, you could walk down the streets and miss somebody walking uh, past you two meters from you. The air was so smoggy and so thick. So whilst it was really bad in Cache Valley and other places in Utah, it was very, very bad in uh, Beijing. And actually, the Economist article noted that a lot of people were packing their bags and leaving upon the insistence of their doctor's advice mm. because it's so unhealthy. Yeah, I would imagine. Uh, in Cache Valley, 
anecdotally, I've had people tell me that they're thinking about leaving. Yes, and I've had the same too. And I had a couple call me up who were, uh, his wife was pregnant and they were very worried about their child. And uh, so they were saying, what should we do? And of course, that's a very difficult question uh, to answer. Yeah. And of course, in Cache Valley, it's more a wintertime problem. Yes. The PM 2.5. Uh, in uh, Salt Lake has an ozone problem, and it's mostly Seth Lyman in the Ona Basin. It's an ozone problem. That's correct, although our ozone problem is in the winter, whereas Salt Lake tends to have higher ozone values in the summer. Okay. Uh, so do, I, I know you participate in studies. There have been studies. What's, what's causing this wintertime ozone? Well, like any ozone issue, it's caused by a combination of the right meteorology and the right emissions that lead to ozone formation. So just like the Cache Valley and other places in Utah, we have really strong winter inversions. The Uinta Basin is a true basin. There's mountains on all four sides, so the inversions tend to build up easily, last a long time, and be, and be very intense. Mm-hmm. And once those inversions set in, then the emissions that are locally are are, that are being formed locally are primarily what's contributing to the problem. And we have a robust oil and gas industry, and, and that ends up, to the best of our knowledge, now being the majority of, of the ozone-related emissions. So just to emphasize that, where, where a Salt Lake has a uh, summertime ozone problem, uh, here, in the, here in the Yona Basin, uh, it's, a, it's a wintertime. And, and similar factors, you're saying, to, to what's happened in uh, Cache Valley. Um, that's right. So meteorologically, it's yeah. very similar to what's happening in the Cache Valley. It, it, we're still not 100% clear why uh, we have ozone here and not high ozone in Salt Lake and Cache Valley. We think it has a lot to do with our unique in- emissions environment here relative to an urban area like, like Cache Valley or Salt Lake Valley. Mm-hmm. But but the, probably it will take several more years of study before we have a firm conclusions about exactly what's, what's different here relative mm-hmm. to there. And uh, though uh, you're experiencing growth here, it's still, you know, it's still not a really urban county, right, urban area, um, probably not enough cars to, to actually make a dent in, in percentages. It's mostly oil and gas, I'm reading. That, that is, for the most part, true. The, there are other emission sources that, as far as, so ozone is formed in the atmosphere from the reaction between oxides of nitrogen and volatile organic compounds. And and they have different sources largely um, in our basin. One large source of oxides of nitrogen is the Bonanza power plant, but its stack is high enough that we think it's not a large contributor because the inversion layer is too low. Um, we don't have a lot of cars, and so it ends up being that the oil and gas industry is plays a larger role there. So it's a it really, because that oil and gas industry is mostly what's here, then it ends up being the biggest player. Mm. Not necessarily that our oil and gas industry is dirtier than the oil and gas industry elsewhere or something yeah. like that. Now, you've heard us talk, um, Seth Lyman, about uh, you know this people talking about leaving Cache Valley. Have, have, have you heard, anecdotally at least, uh, health effects of this, of this ozone? How, how bad has it gotten? Um, the ozone concentrations can be quite high. Um, in Vernal and Roosevelt this last winter, the, the fourth highest state hour ozone concentration average, which is EPA's regulatory value, was 102 parts per billion in Vernal and 104 parts per billion in Roosevelt. Mm. So that's a ways over the EPA standard of 75 parts per billion. Um, It's different than the particulate matter pollution. You can't see ozone. And for healthy people, then you can't really feel it either. The ozone primarily affects people with uh, pre-existing lung conditions like emphysema or asthma can exacerbate their symptoms. It, it can reduce and does reduce lung capacity in otherwise healthy adults, but that's not something that you really sense uh, readily. And so you don't, you don't see it. A normal person doesn't see it as, as clearly as you might be able to see when there's particulate matter pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there have been some articles in local newspapers about the Uinta Basin has higher asthma rates or higher rates of asthma-related hospital admissions than the Utah average. Um, those can be pretty misleading. The, some of the articles kind of pointed to this ozone problem as being the culprit f- for that. Um, it turns out there's other areas in the state with similarly high asthma rates. We don't see statistically significantly higher asthma rates in the winter here relative to the summer. That's not to say that it's not contributing to that, it definitely does cause health-related impacts, but but 
it's there are a lot of other factors in there too so it's hard to tease out specifically which case is from ozone and which case is not hmm. uh, dr gillis um as as we think about this um i've talked to people who are really bothered by but you know and it's in cash valley of course where i, where I live um wear face masks talk about leaving and of course <clears throat> not really affecting me at least i don't perceive that it's affecting me i you know i get up i go to work i i go about my day it, it's you know it looks gunky air it's you know i'd hear it's bad but i'm going about my regular day and i'm probably fairly typical of a lot of people mm-hmm. but this is affecting me oh for sure um as seth was saying i mean for healthy people you don't really notice the effect um but if you went in, say, to the hospital and had a, a lung test for, say, vital capacity or something like that, you may find yourself marginalized uh, in that sense. But it's not just ozone. It's, you know, PM 2.5. And, of course, that you know, PM 2.5 is very, very small. So those organic compounds are actually entering your lungs, uh, causing trouble with your lung tissue entering your bloodstream and then there are all the sort of cardiovascular things that come with that. Now of course this is something that accrues over time and so you're only affected at the winter time Uh, then if you get another inversion similarly that's just as bad next winter you'd be affected again and again and again and of course as you know we don't get uh, strong inversions every year it's variable okay so we this last year we can draw the public's attention to very strong inversions here's all the problems etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but next year if we don't have a strong inversion people will forget mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that goes to public policy and yes. uh, any changes if you believe that change is needed um, maybe a winter like last winter is you know good to move things there were protest rallies at the at the capitol mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm. and such but like you say if it's a not as bad a winter next winter probably pressure's off. Yeah, and we face that with climate change too, Tom. You know, if we have a really cold winter, people say, what's with this global warming? It doesn't happen. And then if we have a really warm winter and not a lot of snow, people, you know, the number jumps by 10% of people who accept the signs of global warming. Mm. So there are perception issues here too. Yeah. I I wonder, uh, I debated about, uh, you know, bringing this forward at this point. I'll just jump in right here. <laughs> um, you get a definite feeling if you drive up and down Vernal and read the bumper stickers. Now, you know, that's a, admittedly an, an inexact science, but it can be some, somewhat <laughs> of an indication of, of public sentiment. Right. Um, I didn't read a pro-climate change bumper sticker at all. There were many, or several, uh, who were expressed skepticism, uh, scorned ridicule uh, about the idea. Right. Uh, you're going to be giving this lecture tonight. Um, I, you know, you, the audience here will skew a little bit to the other way, I imagine, um, our listeners. But perhaps, you know, what, what would you say to the people who are who are saying it's just it's just not human caused? It's not it's not a problem. Well, it all comes down to uh, the science and the fact that uh, people are often not acquainted with the science. And so they have, for example, a huge amount of information that can, comes in over the web, some of which is bona fide science and some of which is totally bogus. And if a person isn't trained in climate science, and it's a very, very complex subject, then I can understand their confusion and, uh, in some cases, their annoyance, and then they'll put their bumper sticker on. Now, why aren't there bumper stickers that say, I believe in global warming? Well, maybe you don't want your, your car keyed. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I would certainly, I don't have a, a bumper sticker like that. Mm-hmm. But um, when we look at the science, I mean, the National Academy of Sciences of the U.S., all the academies all over the world now accept the predominant uh, conclusion that uh, we have global warming, climate change going on, and that it is mostly, predominantly, human-induced. Now, um, you either accept the science or you don't. Now, of course, economics and politics come into this too because we are a carbon-based economy, and it's very frightening to think that we have to move away from that or we have to have public policies that will change that. Um, And so it's probably one of the the fundamental... um, 
I am trying to think of the word, sort of economic, not economic, environmental issue of our time, that we have this knowledge ahead of time. Uh, we're a carbon-based economy. We've always been a carbon-based economy. Everything is like that. We can't move away from it terribly easily. Uh, so I can understand, you know, the reticence of this. But the science dictates that there are going to be significant changes that will affect the human population. And uh, it's 30 years or 40 years from now that, you know, major effects will be, you know, uh, that will come forth. That's hard for people to think about, mm. you know, especially when, you know, you're thinking my, you know, household economics are this year, next year or whatever, uh, to think 30 years down the road. It's tough for mm -hmm. people. And uh, Seth Lyman, the, the, there's definitely, no matter where you come out on, on climate change or, or air quality, there's definite pressure to, to keep your job, right? There's, the, you know, economic, you, we want to keep the economic engine going. And so... Uh, I think uh, here in the basin, there, people are trying to find a way to keep oil and gas going. It's a, it's a wonderful boom. It's providing people a lot of jobs, but you might have some air quality effects. Can the two coexist? Can can there be ways to uh, to modify how we're how we're drilling, how we're extracting oil and gas, and and still improve air quality, for example? Certainly, yeah. I'm, the air quality issue and climate change issue, for that matter, are definitely not great for the economy of the basin and, and will probably have impacts on the economy as, as air quality regulations come into play, and they're already starting to come into play. Um, but, but we think there's definitely ways to minimize that impact and to continue to uh, balance economic impacts with environmental impacts. So, so solve the environmental problems or deal with the environmental problems while at the same time minimizing the effects on our economy. So for example, right now, the, the, for areas of the Uinta Basin where air regulations are administered by the state of Utah, the state is considering plans to require um, changes to how certain aspects of the oil and gas industry are operated that would lower um, their volatile organic compound emissions and, and then hopefully um, minimize or, or lower the, the ozone problem that we have. And they're looking at ways to do that 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 have the minimum economic effect and the maximum benefit. So, and that's what we're really doing at USU also is trying to improve our understanding of what's being emitted, improve our understanding of how ozone is forming in the wintertime because it really is a new, a phenomenon new to science so that everybody from companies to regulatory agencies to politicians have the best information available so that those decisions that are made minimize that economic impact while, while dealing with this environmental problem. At this point, it's state regulation that's mostly in play. I know sort of the EPA in any of these discussions sort of is a hovering, you know, kind of a deus ex machina, I guess. But uh, um, And in, in um, Cache County, uh, now finally, uh, there are going to be emissions, you know, regulations uh, for, for cars. But it's it's usually the EPA that sort of hovers over these things. But right now, it's, it's state regulation, is that that's right, although the state derives its authority to regulate the air from the EPA, so so they're involved at least in, in an implicit way in the process. For the Uinta Basin, um, some of the land here is regulated by the state, and or some of the air emissions are regulated by the state, and for other parts of the basin, it's regulated directly by the EPA. That's because we have a large part of the basin is, is owned by the Ute tribe, and then there's a uh, part of the basin that's called Indian Country, which is kind of a complicated jurisdiction, but it ends up that the, the regulatory authority there is with EPA. And, and they have been, that the state is a little closer to the problem and, and tends to, is, is kind of the first one, at least now, proposing rules. We expect the EPA will follow. And of course, uh, there was a, the, that lawsuit filed last year by a coalition of uh, some conservation groups uh, trying to force the EPA's hand to get a little, little tougher regulations. We'll have to see how that proceeds. Right. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking about air quality and climate change. And we are in the Uinta Basin in eastern Utah. We're broadcasting today from USU's Bingham Entrepreneurship and Energy Research Center. And I'm talking with Seth Lyman, Regional Director for USU's Office of Commercialization and Regional Development. And with state climatologist Robert Gillis, he'll give a talk this evening in Vernal. It's sold out, but uh, uh, interesting talk uh, 
hopefully you got in and uh, got your reservations. Uh, Utah's Climate Symphony, how is Utah wetter and drier at the same time? We're going to be talking about some of the same things, so if you didn't get the reservations, you'll hear some of that uh, talk as we go along today. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to make reference again to this very interesting article in The Economist, and uh, the, the writer is talking about tipping points. Makes right. reference to the uh, the river that caught on fire, Cuyahoga River. <laughs> that was a tipping point for the U.S. And uh, he's saying that maybe winter 2013 in Beijing is a tipping point for them. And we'll talk about uh, the tipping points and uh, much else on air quality and climate change when we come back uh, to our broadcast from Vernal. Following this break. Did you know that librarians make a difference in the lives of students? A recent study showed that fewer librarians in schools translated to lower performance or a slower rise in scores on standardized tests, particularly in fourth grade reading scores. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are in Vernal today, and happy to be so. Events uh, this evening... Dr. Robert Gillis, state climatologist, will be giving a talk. Utah's Climate Symphony, how is Utah wetter and drier at the same time? How climate change is affecting Utah. And uh, <clears throat> that'll be uh, here in Vernal, along with the Dutch oven dinner. That is uh, sold out, so it's great. We had uh, great success with that, but we'll, I'm sure, be back at a, at a later time. We'll be talking about some of the same topics, so don't worry if you, if you uh, didn't get in on this event. Um, and we're talking uh, from... The uh, USU Bingham Entrepreneurship and Energy Research Center. Uh, happy to be back here in the in the center. Uh, it's a great facility, Seth Lyman. This is I, I'm impressed every time I come back. Um, Seth Lyman is regional director for USU's Office of Commercialization and Regional Development. He has participated in air quality studies in the Uinta Basin. Uinta Basin has a wintertime ozone problem, and Seth Lyman, I think, increasingly a bit of a 2.5. PM 2.5 problem is that the case? Um, that at least for the winter 2013, that okay. has been true. The the particulate matter issues have been confined to populated areas in Vernal and Roosevelt, and the state came out with a study this year, basically showing that the majority of that is from wood smoke, and so we do have particulate matter formed um, under inversions when there's ozone, but it but it stays below the EPA standard outside of our populated mm. areas. And we're also talking with state climatologist Robert Gillis. We're talking about air quality and climate change. We're asking you, can industry and uh, good air coexist? Do we face a choice between jobs and a healthy environment? Uh, regarding climate change, uh, what can and should be done, uh, specifically in your personal life, but also in a public policy um, um, standpoint? And we uh, threw out a couple of questions on our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio Facebook page, uh, those questions that I just gave you. Dennis Hinkamp uh, responded with a uh, photo. This is a photo of a semi-truck uh, driving on a highway, and in the background are some uh, windmills. And his uh, comment is, we're in transition. So I think, Tom, what Dennis is trying to say there is that uh, we're transitioning from carbon-based uh, resources creating energy towards uh, wind power, solar power, alternative uh, resources. And so in Utah, this is happening too. And actually, it's happening all over the world. Uh, China's really ramping up. Big time. Renewables, that's a uh, good part of the story. That's right. We always think of China in terms of uh, combusting huge amounts of coal for its energy, and it is doing so, but is also the major, major player in renewable uh, energy generation too, way more than Germany, and Germany is sort of, you know, the, the diamond of uh, renewable energy as far as Europe is concerned. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, of course, uh, Germany has relied uh, quite a bit on nuclear your Germany and France, and uh, right. Uh, of course, that's another that's topic for another and, time. Perhaps. And China's doing that too. They yeah. they have a big nuclear program, I believe, yeah. for energy generation. 
Let's talk about tipping points. This article in The Economist, we're giving them a, a, nice, uh, a nice boost. We are here. indeed. Uh, go to The Economist, <laughs> economist.com, and read the article. But it's a very interesting article. Uh, it talks about, it, it uses China as, as sort of um, uh, an example. Right. Explosive economic growth and ec- environmental degradation. Uh, the West went through this. The U.S. went through this. And some particular areas, maybe including the Yona Basin, are, are going through this. And so what's the tipping point? And the, the, the writer gave the example, I think, 1970s, Cuyahoga River caught on fire. And I'm glad you, you said that because I couldn't have pronounced it properly. <laughs> yeah, so there were a number of examples like, uh, like that in Ohio. Uh, Japan had huge mercury poisoning of its population due to uh, you know, its plastics in- industry. Uh, Britain, for example, in the 1950s was mostly heating its houses. Well, London, for example, was the big example where most of the houses were heated with uh, coal fires. And then there was a huge inversion event uh, that lasted, I think, five, six days, and hundreds of people died. And so these are coined as environmental tipping points where then suddenly government comes in and says, this is unacceptable, and passes legislation. In the case of Britain, it was... uh, you know, cleaner uh, coal in terms of removing the sulfur, I believe, uh, and things like that, where legislation is passed. And it was actually after that, the river in Ohio, you can pronounce it. <laughs> yes, Cuyahoga. Cuyahoga. Yes. Um, when it went on fire, it was devoid of fish and all that sort of stuff. Then I think the EPA was uh, born uh, by, was it Richard Nixon, I believe? I believe so, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, we tend to forget that that part of it. Uh, Republican president. Um, so this writer in The Economist is saying perhaps, of course we don't know, perhaps 2013 Beijing, the winter of uh, you know 2013, with this era that you can't see your neighbor two feet away and, and people wanting to leave the city in droves, maybe that'll be a tipping point for them. Well, it already is, actually, because uh, they now have their version of the EPA. Uh, They have uh, gone forward with a huge program, and the economists quoted some numbers of $290 $290 billion, which is even huge for China's economy, to start to uh, reduce pollution problems associated with their coal-fired power stations, etc., etc. Um, and, of course, the other point I think that was made, Tom, was that they're really following the you know Europe's, America's, and Japan's uh, sort of model, which was grow first, clean up later. And of course, this has some interesting uh, aspects as far as climate change is concerned, because certain pollution events, you can clean them up fairly easily, depending on the pollution event, within a certain time span. Climate change is not like that. Mm. If we reach 450 parts per million uh, in the atmosphere of CO2, which will lead to about a two-degree uh, two C increase uh, in uh, atmospheric air temperature compared to the pre-industrial uh, time, then that's a, potentially an environmental tipping point. Well, we call it a climate tipping point. Mm. And now there's some debate about that figure, but if the climate changes, the lead times associated with the climate are huge. Mm. So if our climate changes, whichever direction it does, we're not going to get it back to what we have now for a long time. Mm. And that's what's so worrying about it. And that's why it's so critical to uh, manage our carbon resources so that we don't hit that 450 mm. value. So what do you think the tipping point would be there with global climate change? We We tend to think locally right we do um and uh, in fact public opinion is is has been moving toward climate change skepticism uh and not toward acceptance of, of climate change would it, miami underwater would that be a to the, the tipping point and then it's too late right well you said it i mean there was an article that came out about a couple of months ago 30 years from now sea level rise will be so significant that florida will be marginalized and for that matter uh, China, which has 60 million people along its coastline, most of its industry along the coastline is equally vulnerable to uh, to that. So you think about sea level rise, how are you going to turn that around overnight? It's not possible. Uh, and so Florida and parts of the east coast of the U.S. will be marginalized for sure. And it's almost unimaginable to think 30 years from now that will occur. Mm-hmm. 
we're throwing out questions to you. Um, what are you doing about climate change in, in your personal life? What should be done on public policy level? What about air quality? Uh, tell us your air quality or air pollution story. Robert Davies, your colleague, always reminds me it's not an air quality problem. It's an air pollution problem. Yes. So I'll, 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 I'll say it that way. Um, but uh, and what has been your experience and uh, what do you think should be done about uh, air uh, pollution uh, in uh, the Uinta Basin? Interested to, to learn uh, what how you're feeling in the Uinta Basin, in Vernal, and, uh, and areas around the Uinta Basin or in Cache Valley or anywhere in Utah. Anywhere you are, you can comment on our email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can go to our Utah Public Radio Facebook page and uh, comment there. Uh, Seth Lyman, I wonder what it, you've, I think, have been involved in some panels and uh, some discussions. I know there's been ongoing discussion about air quality in the Uinta Basin, trying to figure out, and involving industry, involving conservation groups, involving community leaders. That's right. On what to do. How can we come together? How can we preserve economic growth but uh, clean up clean up the air? Has there been any, any consensus formed in, in any of these meetings? I, I don't know if I would go that, that far. I think that the problem is still fairly new. We've, we've only even understood that it exists since 2010. And so, but, but there is a growing understanding that, that it needs to be dealt with by industry and regulatory agencies and, and others. So I think that all groups are looking to see um, what can we do and how quickly to deal with this problem. But, but exactly what needs to be done uh, it is, is still a matter of debate. And, and part of that is because we actually aren't clear yet on what needs to be controlled to most effectively deal with the problem. For for ozone, then, usually controls on oxides of nitrogen or controls on volatile organics. Are, one can be more effective than the other. And in fact, if you choose the wrong one, it can make the problem worse, at least in the short term. Hmm. And because the chemistry of the wintertime ozone is different in some aspects than the summertime ozone, and though we, we aren't very clear about how different it is, um, then we don't have a good understanding yet of which of those needs to be controlled. Mm. Right now, the state, and, and I think there is kind of a consensus that controls on organic compounds that are emitted from the oil and gas industry is, is kind of a safe bet, um, but we don't know yet what level of controls are needed to, to reach the EPA ozone standard. I've been reading some of these, uh, you know, you read the Vernal Express, some of the, some of the meetings, uh, industry is touting things that they are doing. They're they're saying that they are trying to clean up clean up the air. Uh, part of that, I'm sure, is they're trying to head off some regulation. But uh, they are saying that they are doing some things to clean up the air. What if you've been hearing that from industry as well? Yeah, and that's true. Especially new development, new field, and Anadarko both have have some new development. And as that's coming in, then there it's much has much lower emissions they're they're doing things like liquid gathering systems to limit tra traffic and and limit emissions um, that haven't been done in the past um, there's still a lot of development that has been here for a long time that that isn't incorporating those kind of new technologies and so i think as the industry moves forward they're very keen on the need to to lower emissions and to operate in a more environmentally friendly way. Mm. And you see that from companies large and small and, and service companies as well. I wonder, you made reference to this a little earlier in the program. I want to bring this up again. Um, ozone maybe is a little harder to, to get people excited about um, because you can't see it as well, right? It's, it's Maybe it's affecting Well, not maybe it is affecting you. Uh, PM 2.5, you can, you can look out over, you know, if you... You, you go out of the Cache Valley and you come back in, and, uh, and it's just a kind of a haze settled over the over the valley. Um, ozone's sort of a little different animal from public perception standpoint. Yeah, that's right. Um, in the early or the mid part of the 20th century in Los Angeles, there is ozone 400 parts per billion or above, and at that point, then it you, it's hard to drive because it's bothering your eyes. It's hard to breathe, and and then you can. You can start to really understand that you have a problem at that point, but but we're well below that in the Uinta Basin, and so so it's it's a lot easier to ignore, I guess. And yeah, I think there's a real component like that to it. Yeah, and uh, it's only certain winters that it gets bad enough that people really notice and start complaining, and you know, as we said before, marching on the Capitol and, and such. Uh, Dr. Gillis, you, you've uh, done some studies, or I've, I've seen some studies that you've referenced about when we get inversions and what 
what what affects that um, and of course that has a big effect on on how this is affecting us yes inversions and we're talking about temperature inversions are quite complex um, the long-lasting inversions, for example, are initially uh, initiated uh, from the Western Pacific. So climate matters, right? It's not just local, it's climate. And so that sets up a high-pressure system, you know, over the Uinta Basin and over Utah, etc. And it persists for quite some time. And that prevents, or basically it traps the pollutants that you emit or give off uh, within industry and cars, etc., etc. But it's also compounded by the fact that you have bowl-shaped valleys. If you have a large snowfall that year and the snow is residing in the valley, that affects it too. And it's sort of an additive compounding effect that really does deepen the inversion and when the inversion really deepens then the pollutants get concentrated big time uh, both locally and over time. We're talking on Access Utah today with Robert Gillis. You just heard from him there, state climatologist. We're also talking with Seth Lyman, who's regional director for USU's Office of Commercialization and Regional Development, talking about air quality. We've had especially bad winter in Cache uh, Valley, um, increasingly increasing problem in the Uinta Basin, wintertime ozone problem, and uh, last winter, PM 2.5 problem. We're also talking about climate change. We've been making reference to China as a sort of a, I don't know, what you call it, canary in the coal mine uh, example, at least an extreme example of uh, economic development right. and, and the effects of the uh, on the environment from that. We're going to continue this discussion. When we come back from our next break, uh, we will be talking about how climate change is likely to affect Utah. And uh, we'll tease it the way we're doing with, uh, with the talk with uh, Dr. Gillis tonight, sponsored by U Utah Public Radio. How is Utah wetter and drier at the same time? I'll ask Dr. Gillis that when we come back uh, from the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Intermountain Medical Group doctors Gary Harris and Bart Avery, welcoming Dr. David Emmett to the new North Cache Valley Medical Clinic on Highway 91 in Hyde Park. Appointments being accepted at 563-4800. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll follow the most popular musical rhythm on the planet to nations far and wide. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Reggae, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Fridays at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm coming to you from the Uinta Basin. Uh, today we're broadcasting from USU's Bingham Entrepreneurship and Energy Research Center. Uh, my guests include this hour Seth Lyman, Regional Director for USU's Office of Commercialization and Regional Development, and State Climatologist Robert Gillis. Robert Gillis will give a talk uh, this evening in Vernal titled Utah's Climate Symphony. How is Utah wetter and drier at the same time? Our topics for the hour are air quality and climate change. You're welcome to join this conversation. We hope that you will uh, weigh in on uh, what you think should be done about climate change and air quality. How are things going where you live? And you could talk about public policy or just maybe changes you are making or suggest that we make in our personal lives. And the uh, way to get a hold of us um, today is by email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And uh, here is a comment from uh, Charles, uh, Charles Ashurst. Thank you for this. He says, I so applaud Dr. Gillis's educating the public on the specifics of how climate change will affect us. People might begin to take this seriously if they know specifically how this is going to impact their grandkids. Um, when, where, and how. So, so, Dr. Gillis, maybe we could follow up on that. How, how is this going to affect our grandkids? When, where, and how? For Utah? Uh, I guess for Utah <laughs> or, for, or, or globally. It's a big topic. Well, thank you, Charles, for that comment. Um, how much do you want me to say, Tom? Because I might give away things for the talk tonight. <laughs> I, I guess uh, tease, tease them a little bit, but uh, there are people who won't make it to the talk. So, so you can be as, as, as fulsome of, as you want. Right. Well, the research that we've done for Utah 
shows that the hydroclimate is changing. In other words, we rely on uh, snowfall in the winter for our water resources, which are mostly from groundwater, very few from reservoirs, actually. Uh, and that snow has to melt uh, carefully and percolate through into the aquifer, and then we tap that aquifer for water. So in the past, we've had lots of snow. Well, the atmosphere over Utah is warming, and what's happening is there's a shift from snow to rain. So we're getting more of our precipitation coming as rain. What is really interesting, though, is that our precipitation, certainly in northern Utah, is increasing, right? But more of it is coming as rain. But the storms that are bringing it in are less frequent. So what does that mean to you? Well, it means to me, and we prove it in the paper, that what is really happening is that the storms are more intense. So we're getting less frequent, more intense uh, storms that are bringing in more rain and less snow. So uh, we're getting less snow. That potentially means less uh, snow uh, percolating into the aquifer, but we're getting more rain. How do we trap that rain? Do we have to build more reservoirs or whatever? We have a growing population in Utah, and so we've got sort of a diametric opposite type of situation going on here. So the future for Utah, at least in terms of precipitation, is exactly that. And then, of course, water managers have to deal with that scenario. Okay. Now, we've looked at it for the last 50 years, but the models are also showing that that trend will continue into the future. It also has ramifications for agriculture. It has ramifications for the ski industry. You probably notice that the snow line doesn't come down as far as it used to, for example, in the mountains. It also uh, has ramifications for industry because industry uses water <coughs> okay, for many of its processes, including generating electricity. So there's all sorts of an interesting you know, things going on with the hydroclimate that are going to affect our children for the future. The other thing that's happening, of course, and this summer is very much uh, the case, is that temperature is increasing dramatically. So we've, we've hit extremes. We've hit those extremes for longer periods of time this summer than before all over the country, and actually, for that matter, all over the world. Okay, so we're getting warmer temperatures. What does that mean? So, you know, potentially, you know, in our reservoirs, we're getting greater ev evaporation. The vegetation is more stressed and there's less water in the ground, et cetera, et cetera. But the tricky thing is it's also cyclical, right? Our drought cycles, uh, our drought is cyclical, right? And we're in a drought period at the moment. We'll probably be in it for another two years, and then we'll come out of that uh, into a wet period uh, in about two to three years. How are those drought cycles going to be affected by uh, climate change? Are they going to be amplified? And it sort of looks like that. It's, it's certainly in terms of these extreme events. So I've said a lot there, mm -hmm. right? But the bottom line is more water, but more coming is rain, less is snow. We get most of our water currently from the groundwater that is replenished by the snow, less by reservoirs. We're getting warmer temperatures, and that has all sorts of effects uh, that compound upon our water resources. Including, including drought, including exacerbated drought. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, fire management, fire seasons might be affected, I would imagine. Yes, and I was asked this earlier on in the year two, you know, are we expecting a greater fire season? And, of course, my answer was, well, climatologically, everything's in place. Is everything in place ecologically? Was the vegetation uh, dry at the time? It wasn't, but it did become dry over the summer. And then, of course, it all depends on uh, well, there are two aspects, you know, to fires. One is anthropogenic, people having a campfire and a, a loose spark, for example, or a loose flame. And then there's obviously the natural side, which we're experiencing in Cache Valley at the moment, where a lightning strike has uh, caused the Millville fire, which mm -hmm. is still ongoing. And there's quite a few fires all over the state. So what has happened is, of course, the vegetation has dried out. We've had a uh, monsoonal flow, which creates convective conditions, uh, dry lightning, and uh, so we have started towards the end of the season. We're actually seeing quite a number of increases in the uh, forest fires around the state. So for the future, that would be a very definite climate change scenario. More dry conditions, less water, greater potential for forest fires.
We're coming to you from Vernal today, and uh, we're hearing from state climatologist Robert Gillis. He's giving a talk for Utah Public Radio this evening called Utah's Climate Symphony. How is Utah wetter and drier at the same time? The talk is uh, sold out. Uh, if you're uh, not in on that with a reservation, uh, we will no doubt be back out here with another event. You can get us that, that uh, next time. And we're also talking with Seth Lyman, who is Regional Director for USU's Office of Commercialization and uh, regional development. Coming down to uh, the last uh, five or six minutes of the program, we have a, another email who made reference to our talk about bumper stickers <laughs> earlier. I, I mentioned that uh, <laughs> last time I was out um, to Vernal, I, I, I was struck by the you know several bumper stickers. Just sort of, I felt a sort of a, a climate, no pun intended, of, uh, of some climate change skepticism. And uh, by that measure of the population, admittedly very unscientific, um, there was a lot of skepticism about uh, climate change. And then we talked about the bumper stickers, and you said, well, you don't have a, a bumper sticker on your car saying, I believe in climate change. This emailer says, why would you have such a bumper sticker on your car? Why wouldn't you ride a horse or, or you know, something? It would be kind of a little disconnect if you had a, such a bumper sticker on your car, I guess, contributing to, to the problem. Right, right. Well, I think it's sort of a personality issue. If you believe in something and you want to broadcast it, how do you do it? Well, you do it over, you know, Twitter and things like that these days. Or you can put a bumper sticker on your car, okay, that says, you know, this is my opinion. And we've all seen some pretty robust, and that's a kind word, I think, bumper stickers. <laughs> uh, why would someone do that? Um, because they firmly... Uh, believe, and I hate the word believe, because the climate science is quite robust and quite definitive as to uh, what has happened and what is going to happen. Uh, and whatever people believe uh, that, it, that they have some alternate, uh, what's the word, some alternate uh, modus operandi, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but the word is apropos, isn't it? It, it? it strikes me, when we talk about climate change, you get into debates especially, um, it takes on a quasi-religious tone. You know, I, I believe in climate change, I don't believe in climate change. I believe, you know, and the, the scientists are telling me it's climate change, I, I believe it's bogus. Uh, you know, it takes on that tone. Well, it depends to what extent. Now we're getting into some philosophy here, okay, yeah. and you, I'm getting out of my comfort zone for sure. Um, but uh, it depends to what extent your population is scientifically uh, cognizant and to what extent they understand the science. Now, you know, if you have a medical problem, you will go to a doctor, okay, and you will accept the science that that doctor has been taught about, you know, this is our conclusion that what you have. But sometimes you'll be skeptical about it. and You'll say, well, I want a second opinion. And you go and you'll get a second opinion. And that second opinion, if it reinforces the first opinion, gives you a feeling of confidence, okay? So what I say to people out there, I'm a climate scientist. I've been studying this for over 30 years. I have qualifications uh, in this field. And I'm telling you that the evidence is such that what I'm telling you I feel is robust. But if you're skeptical, I have many, many more scientists all over the world who would be quite willing to give you a second, third, or fourth opinion. And often the numbers, you know, thrown out that 97% of scientists uh, out there, you know, uh, are very confident about anthropogenic forcing of climate change. Um, but again, I'll say you have the national academies uh, here in the U.S., the most fundamental scientific institution why wouldn't you accept their conclusion? Mm. And I would probably end with that, because I think I said enough. <laughs> <laughs> you, said a, you said a mouthful. Um, and if you'd like to comment on what Dr. Gillis said, you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or uh, comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We have another two or three minutes left. I'd like to turn to Seth Lyman. Um, kind of apart from, from air quality, um, and I don't know if... if You've participated in any of these studies. Looking beyond the latest boom, and uh, I grew up in Vernal. I experienced a lot of booms and busts, and the booms are fun, and the busts are, are not as fun. Uh, this is a huge boom, and it's uh, probably continue for a long time, but it'll probably be another bust. And I, uh, are you hearing talk? Or we, 
doing some studies. I'm sure the you know government officials are certainly probably thinking about this. How do we prepare for after the boom? That's a good question, and and maybe outside my realm of mm-hmm. of expertise, um, but in the county, in Uinta County and Duchesne counties, then you're we're seeing people kind of trying to plan for the longer term, and part of that is using unconventional resources like oil sands and oil shale instead of conventional resources, which has its own climate implications that, that, that we could talk about, I guess. But the idea is that by opening up new resources, uh, it, it can mediate the boom and bust cycle. Although, from what I've read, then it does seem like because of the increasing demand for hydrocarbons throughout the world, including China and India and elsewhere, uh, it's likely that our the price of oil will be sustained and high for a, for quite some time, and so I think a lot of people are anticipating that the boom will last for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting to to look at a lot of these communities. Said uh, Vernal's very vibrant. Uh, I imagine if you went to North Dakota, some of those some of those areas, it you know, it would it would have that similar feel. So we're we're the projections are this boom probably lasts for for a while, quite a while. I I don't know if I've seen any official project projections, but that does seem to be the sentiment in the community, yes. Mm-hmm. And with the attendant problems of growth, one of those is air quality, I guess. Yeah, right. And another is housing. We have a, a real housing shortage in the basin. Rent rent prices are, are high. I, uh, when I first moved here a couple of years ago, we we rented for a while, and, and it becomes quite unaffordable mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Yeah, um, so there there are problems that go along with that. Yeah. Uh, although a little more manageable growth, I imagine you in a basin in North Dakota, you get the feeling it's you know it's kind of a wild west feel, a bunch of young men, not as not many women, uh, it's, you know, living in trailers. Yeah, and and we do have kind of a, a portion of the population that's that's transient or will probably not stay here for forever. But you, I I don't see that kind of explosive growth here that you read about in North Dakota. And in fact, there's the some of the economic development. Folks in our county government are, or the the different county governments, uh, are worried because the growth has seems to be slowing, and it and it's not clear if that's a, if that's a long term trend or just a short term thing related to to gas prices or something mm-hmm. like that. So so we'll see as we go forward. Interesting. Uh, for now, uh, Vernal is the fifth fastest growing micropolitan area in, in the nation. Um, Uinta County, uh, 29% growth in the last decade. Uh, interesting opportunities and, and problems. We've been talking about some of those uh, with Seth Lyman, who is Regional Director for USU's Office of Commercialization and Regional Development. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. And state climatologist Robert Gillis has joined us. Thank you. Pleasure. Uh, he'll give a talk. It's a sold-out talk, by the way, uh, for UPR tonight, Utah's Climate Symphony. How is Utah wetter and drier at the same time? We've talked a bit about those issues as well. And uh, we've been uh, coming to you from the USU Bingham Entrepreneurship and Energy Research Center. Thank you to them for hosting us. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.